0: This week, Vox culture writer Constance Grady on the Kavanaugh hearings, as well as how sexual politics and depictions of rape in popular culture can provide us some contexts. From the movies of the 1980s, like Sixteen Candles, to Game of Thrones Today, this is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey guys, this is Christina Yerling Biru. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. It seems somehow telling that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's powerful testimony and the allegations of sexual misconduct against Brett Kavanaugh took place almost exactly one year after the anniversary of the Harvey Weinstein revelations. These hearings seem to converge all the themes of the Me Too movement this past year, and the despair and anger over the fact that Brett Kavanaugh did get confirmed this weekend is raw. With me this week is Vox Culture writer Constance Grady, and I'm so happy to have her back on the show with me. Ms. Grady has written about the Me Too movement throughout, about the Kavanaugh hearings, as well as how pop culture puts so much of this in context, particularly the movies of the 1980s, which is around the same time when the events Kavanaugh is accused of took place. For many of us, John Hughes' movies were momentous occasions growing up. But it seems painfully clear now that, for example, date rape was treated like a silly subplot, and there are huge blind spots around so many of the themes of sexual politics in his movies. Has this changed in our narratives today? We talk about all this coming up. Miss Grady and I talked on Monday, so I started by asking her about Kavanaugh's swearing-in by President Trump just a few days earlier and what the immediate reactions were.
1: The results are probably not unexpected. I think uh, in a lot of ways, watching the Kavanaugh confirmation has been sort of like watching a bit of a slow-motion train wreck. You can kind of see everything coming because it's just such a slow, drawn out and protracted process. And at a certain point, it became clear that uh, the people in the Senate who wanted to confirm Kavanaugh regardless of the allegations against him had found a way to do so without, as far as they could tell, coming off as terrible monsters who don't understand the gravity of sexual assault And that was to just repeat over and over again that they believe Christine Blasey Ford, who has accused Kavanaugh of assaulting her when they were teenagers in 1982, uh, but they don't believe that... Kavanaugh was the person who assaulted her it's kind of a I believe women and I believe her except I don't really believe her kind of very tricky slippery little rhetorical having
0: it both ways right Mm -hmm. um and how are the sort of reactions around you there sort of Sunday and, and today as you get into work on Monday
1: you know I just keep seeing women being so so sad I think there was there's been a lot of anger over the past year and a lot of discussion of women's anger as a political force and how powerful it can be. Uh, Rebecca Tracer just had this really brilliant book come out called Good and Mad about women's anger as political force. Um, and that that fury has almost sort of metabolized itself into sadness because this, uh, this confirmation is sort of like a culmination of the entire Me Too movement, right? It comes mm-hmm. almost exactly a year after... Uh, the first article, the first New York Times article against Harvey Weinstein was published. That was October fifth of last year. Um, it comes two years after the Access Hollywood tape uh, of Donald Trump.
0: Right, I said that horrible pussy grabbing tape, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes.
1: that's the one. Right. And after all of this happened, after these two years of increasingly. Uh, Effective, it seemed, uh, conversation about sexual assault and how it is sort of allowed to operate with impunity within the system that we have created after all of this talking and all of these powerful men losing their jobs and actually seeming to face repercussions, even if not legal repercussions for their actions, there's this sort of sense of like, did it even really matter? Right. Did we get anything out of it except this fig leaf of, oh, I believe women. I just don't believe this particular, perhaps the most important thing that she said.
0: Right. And, and it has no impact on powerful men getting their powerful jobs.
1: Exactly. You can maybe get a Harvey Weinstein or a Les Mumez fired every now and then, but they're still in the highest reaches of government.
0: What were what was striking to you about um, Kavanaugh's hearing itself, what he actually said about sexual
1: assault and what he did and didn't do? Uh, well, Kavanaugh's testimony was, very striking, I think, for the emotional tone that he took. He was very, very angry and aggrieved the whole time. And, you know, and to a certain extent, that makes sense. If he believes himself to be falsely accused of sexual assault, that is a thing that you would be angry and defensive about. But just the sort of hectoring, kind of scolding tone that he took throughout his testimony, um there was a point in which a senator asked him if he'd ever drunk to the point of blacking out and he sort of de- turned it on her and went, well, have you? And it was just mm-hmm, such mm-hmm. A, a strange sight to see a man who is essentially at a job interview for a like really, really important consequential job um, just taking this opportunity to scold and Hector the... People who are considering hiring him, and not only that, but to demonstrably tell multiple falsehoods about uh, about his teenage years, claiming multiple times that he's never drunk to the point of blacking out, when there are multiple people who knew him in high school and college who have submitted signed statements saying that this is false, uh, telling that claiming that uh, a sort of dirty joke poem that he put in his yearbook about a classmate was a reference to having, they. I think he said they all liked her so much that they just wrote an right, inside right. joke poem they were
0: such good friends <laughs> Yes,
1: um, when clearly the poem is claiming that they considered her easy and they all were bragging about having slept with her even though she says they haven't um, he was able to just tell these lies and clearly perjure himself and the, the sort of narrative coming out of that in right-wing circles was just like, well, you know, of course he did. That He was under a lot of stress. He's being falsely accused of sexual assault. Of course you would perjure yourself in that situation. Yeah. And we're just like not even considering that disqualifying for the Supreme Court anymore. That's just like a shocking state of affairs.
0: Right, right. And and strikingly, Dr. Ford, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot and many others have noted, she um, came out and was, did not, although she should be the one that should be mad, was mm-hmm. not at all. And people have talked a lot about um, women not being able to show anger in a situation like this, which of course is an, ex- is an extreme situation, but still.
1: Yeah, Dr. Ford's testimony was so strikingly... Uh, she kept repeating over and over again that she just wanted to be helpful. She was such a careful witness. She was so obliging to everyone who spoke to her. She stuck to her story. She was very clear and credible about it. And she just kept, she seemed so eager to please. It was a sort of Mm -hmm. almost heartbreaking sight to see her just want to help these people come to their conclusion and want to be liked almost Mm -hmm, as she did it.
0: And then finally there we have the president himself. And and you were mentioning earlier Mm. that the reaction from the others was like, we believe her, uh, but we don't believe that it was him. While he basically just Mm. mocked her. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah. Uh I think it's been interesting to watch Trump's response to Dr. Ford escalate over time uh when she first came forward with the accusations against kavanaugh he his response was for Trump pretty measured uh he was he didn't go after her character sorry, he didn't go after her character, which is for him kind of like mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, he would instead say things like well if it had happened I'm sure she would have reported it that kind of like thing that like is pretty gross and plays into a lot of different myths about rape culture but is comparatively not it has like a fig leaf of decorum over it um, and then at a certain point he just dropped that and started saying that she didn't know what she was talking about and that she was all mixed up and crazy and lying um and his supporters seem very uh enervated by that narrative they seem to really enjoy the the chance to mock and and uh call to mock Dr. Ford and call for her to be locked up and uh <sighs> Generally, put her in the Hillary slot for right, for right. this narrative.
0: You said earlier, yeah, you mentioned that these um, incidents that the hearings about took place in the early '80s, and and that's an interesting time for uh, in pop culture as well, because so many seminal high school mm-hmm. movies came out at that time that you've written about. Um, The cultural sort of understanding of rape in the 80s was so fundamentally different. Um, um, Tell me a little bit about what you saw in these movies and 16 Candles particularly that made you um, write this.
1: Recurring idea in the 80s, in 80s teen movies that you see over and over again, which is that in certain circumstances, A sexual encounter that to our eyes in 2018 appears to be like just straightforwardly rape. In these movies, it's Mm -hmm. just like fun hijink. It's like a wacky little comedic subplot that's kind of like raunchy and silly and just something that is there to be fun. Um, And it was really striking to me in 16 Candles, especially because it's not that movie is not a raunch comedy, it's not a sex comedy, it's this incredibly romantic high school love story that. People love for Jake Ryan and the Molly Ringwald character Sam sitting together, you know, across this cake, gazing into each other's eyes. It's a very Mm -hmm. romantic, iconic moment. And yet, it has this recurring comedic subplot where Jake Ryan's girlfriend Caroline gets drunk, passes out, and Jake Ryan passes her over to another guy and just says, have fun. And then we see that caroline and this guy end up having sex to which caroline does not consent and that's kind of just the joke of it that they had the sexual encounter she did not want
0: right and and what's really sad because i sort of grew up on these movies i'm a bit older than you are i think and it makes me so sad today to sort of realize that i don't think this even struck me as anything other than comedy and he was being nice to the nerd and this is what sort of what happens and 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 this feeling that um if a woman gets that drunk well then it's her fault and it's just
1: horrible (laughs) exactly it's such a striking scene because in so many ways what caroline does um in 2018 kind of seems like she's being pretty safe like she's getting drunk in a safe situation at her boyfriend's house when right. she passes out. She goes to her his room where presumably, you know, she would expect to feel safe because she would, you know, trust him to not hand her over to some random guy that he just wants to be a pal to. Um, but in 1982 or 1984, when this movie came out, the narrative is kind of like, well, you know, if you drink, you're asking for it. And, you know, Whatever happens to this girl who gets this drunk, you know, that's funny. It doesn't really count as rape. Right, right. But also she deserves to be degraded and taken down a peg.
0: Right. And the weird thing about especially the John Hughes movies is that at the same time, we were all sort of so engaged with especially Molly Ringwald's different characters, Mm. because for us, she was a really strong, cool woman um a girl who dressed like she wanted and was eccentric and was and was and at the same time this was happening and it sort of passed by and we didn't notice this until now
1: yeah and i think in a certain way the caroline plot actually if you buy into the 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 value structures of it which you know kind of everyone did at the time um it kind of makes Molly Ringwald seem better, right? Because the fact that Jake Ryan considers Caroline to be disposable sort of proves that he considers Molly Ringwald's character Sam to be really, really special. Exactly. It, right, Caroline's sort of the whore and Molly Ringwald's the virgin.
0: Sixteen Candles, a movie about creeps, scar, a draghead, hunks, hopes, parties. <laughs> this is everybody. Bodies, geeks, clicks. Yes. I'm back. So I smell.
1: And all the terrifying things. Can I borrow your underpants for 10 minutes? That make life wow. worth living.
0: Classic.
1: 16 candles. This is getting good. Ready PG. Special sneak preview Friday and Saturday night. Check newspaper for theater information.
0: Um, and she herself, Molly Ringwald, has actually um, come out the past uh, year or so, and she liked to appreciate your article, I understand, um, and, and talked about and written about how she feels very, has very difficult, ambivalent feelings towards her old movies. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, Molly Ringwald wrote this really beautiful article in The New Yorker that came out in April, sort of reexamining the movies she made with John Hughes. And she's very, you know, respectful and, and empathetic towards Hughes and to their work together and is very clear about how much she feels that she owes him. But she also suggests that the the sexual politics of his movies become very difficult to watch for her in 2018. Um, she describes trying to watch The Breakfast Club with her daughter um, and being really uh, disturbed by how Judd Nelson's character uh, keeps sort of harassing Ringwald's character Claire and and degrading her and putting her down and, like, tries to look at her underwear and touch her without her consent. And then at the end, you know, he iconically gets the girl and punches the air in triumph. And the the harassment of her through the rest of the movie gets coded as this sort of, like, fun, sexy, battle-of-the-sexes banter.
0: Right. She falls in love with him either way.
1: Exactly. Mm-mm-mm
0: how much do you think sort of uh, reality influenced pop culture in the 80s or the, uh, you know, the real reality of, you know what I mean? Which way was it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you can't necessarily say that like, oh, yes, I watched 16, that people were saying, oh, I watched 16 Candles and now I'm definitely going to go find a drunken unconscious girl to have sex with without her consent. Like, that's not really a thing that happens. But these movies are sort of in conversation with the culture around them. They are shaped by what people are seeing happening around them. And then they're also going on to shape what continues to happen. Um, So people don't consider the date rape scene in Sixteen Candles to be date rape at the time. So it gets to be portrayed as like a fun, silly subplot. And then people continue to have a hard time thinking of date rape as, in fact, rape in part because all of the movies that they keep seeing, like 16 Handles, are telling them that it's a fun and silly thing. So when you have the first big national date rape scandal in 1990, it's met with this widespread confusion. No one really knows how to talk about it. Uh, allegedly, the victim's father at the time told her that if she hadn't brought her date back home to her dorm room after they went out to dinner then she would never have been raped Mm -hmm. when
0: did you start to see changes in in these types of or how we depicted rape so lightly so to speak um in popular culture do you do you have an idea about that
1: Well, I think one thing it's important to remember is that 80s culture wasn't, you know, a monolith. So even at the time that you have, you know, the John Hughes movies and Revenge of the Nerd and all of those, you still have uh, other movies that are depicting it as, are depicting sexual assault as uh, a lot more serious and and weighty. Um, I think especially movies made by women, Um, something like Mm -hmm. Dirty Dancing was made in 1980 and it has... uh, I believe, a very brief uh, scene of someone attacking a girl that is treated as very dark and difficult, and it also has, of course, the whole pro-choice abortion subplot. Right. Um, I think you start seeing that narrative happen more, uh, the narrative of date rape as being something really, really terrible and awful happening more consistently going into the 90s when you get Thelma and Louise and then heading into teen movies, like The Craft, where and in its second half, that becomes essentially a story of these witchy girls getting revenge on a date-rapist jock.
0: Oh, right, right. Uh, That's interesting that you nem- talked about Thelma and Louise. I was just reading a little scene. Um, someone sent me a script page from that, which was so incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm sure you, you, you remember it, when um, Gina Davis' character has just... Um, been through what she's been through, and, and Susan Sarandon basically just says, um, "You can't report this. No one is going to believe you. You were so drunk."
1: Yes, I saw that going around on social media. It's very, um, it's very of the moment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's sort of funny to think to see that narrative going around again because it goes back so far in our culture. Like in in Measure for Measure, there's a scene where a woman threatens to report a man who's trying to uh, to pressure her into having sex with him in order to get her brother released from jail. And he says something like, who would believe thee, Isabel? Like that right. line just goes back so far.
0: Mm-hmm. What about, so we have all this behind us, all these examples that you've given. And, and, and um, even though things may feel bleak, there's been a lot of conversation this past um, you know, year especially about cultures on film sets and and um, work in general. Just how we think about um, how we think of those, but in depictions at, in film, how would you say where where are we today?
1: I think the major conversation we're seeing about depictions of rape in film and on TV is is it responsible or is it exploitative? That was a major conversation around Game of Thrones, right? The idea that we keep being shown rape as being kind of sexy and titillating. Um, and the feminist response to that is, well, let's you know, make sure this, to be clear, that this is a terrible, violent crime and that it affects these women's lives and, and not just sort of wallow in it too hard. Um, and I think that it's, probably the the best depiction that we have in popular culture of, of dealing with this is in a show like Jessica Jones um, mm-hmm. where it's very continually clear about the exactly what went down but we're never shown it in like a, a sexy titillating way um, Jessica Jones for people who don't know is uh, one of the Marvel TV shows on Netflix um, and it depicts a woman with superpowers who has been in a year-long abusive relationship with a man whose power is that he can make people do whatever he tells them to do. So he essentially takes away her her ability to consent for a year and embarks in what he he frames as a romantic relationship with her. But when she gets out of it, she's very clear that what he did to her was rape and that it was terrible and had all kinds of traumatic effects on her and we really see how her her personality how her whole experience has has changed because of that but we're never asked to consider what happened to her fun or sexy or or in any way romantic
0: right we see it for what it is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's so interesting well um on a on a sort of positive note do you see um what do you see that this past uh two years you were saying roughly or so what are some of the positive things you see happening um, um with the whole movement and and these type of of depictions and talk and and conversations about rape culture
1: i think the fact that we're having this conversation at all is a really really big change um you know when when I was growing up in the, in the nineties, the sort of dominant narrative was that sexism was over in America and, uh, you know, feminists were just being whiny. And there was, there weren't really, there wasn't really any change that we needed to strive for anymore. And I think this whole Me Too movement and the ensuing conversation has made it very clear to most people that in fact, There is still a lot of sexism in America and the rest of the world, and there's plenty of changes that need to be fought for. And the people who are fighting for it aren't being whiny or shrill or hyperbolic, but are in fact justifiably very, very angry. Um, And I think the fact that that anger is now seen more widely as legitimate is a huge change. And can potentially hopefully lead to further changes in the systems around us and the wider culture.
0: And how important it is with the um, uh, representation and these depictions um, that show other sides of this type of thing, because we are so incredibly ingrained with the stuff we see on film and in TV. I'm just thinking about how I myself saw a film like Sixteen Candles. And that's not just with the um, rape culture and dating culture in that movie, but also how they, protect, um, you know, sort of showed Asian and American mm. characters and yeah. things like that
1: yeah yeah we've definitely you could never hopefully have a character like long duck dong in 16 novels today
0: um finally are you worried though because of what did happen this weekend and that the confirmation went through and such that that there will be um a feeling that women will not report and and that things will go back a few steps again
1: I mean, already the deck is stacked so hard against women who want to report. You know, that the process of investigating is so traumatic that sometimes people call it the second rape. It's so, so difficult to do. It's so unlikely to lead to a conviction statistically um, that this just seems like it's piling on more reasons for people to not step forward. Uh, What I'm trying to hold on to is remembering that in the wake of the Anita Hill hearings for Clarence Thomas Thomas in 1991, that actually uh, served to kind of galvanize a movement of women. The following year was called the Year of Women in Congress because so many women were running for office to try to get into the system and change it from within. Um, And we're now seeing that they were only partially able to do that, but... Hopefully, this entire hearing will will spark a new generation of younger women to try to seek office and to try to continue forcing the system to change from within.
0: All right. Well, let's really hope for that. Thank you so much, Constance Grady. This was so interesting. I, and, and I really want to encourage uh, my listeners to go read your um, articles and all your uh, reporting on this, because it's really excellent. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much to Constance Grady. You can read her articles on vox.com. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate and review. This show was edited by Catherine Lundell and I'm Christina Yerling Biro. See you next week.